We're going to begin Second Peter tonight. You know better than to sit down before I pray over you. It's funny to watch new visitors. They think something's wrong with us. Down, up, down, up, down. We keep you in shape. It's good to be here. It's good for you. But we're going to take a trek through Second Peter. This book is so powerful. Of course, they all are. But I can't tell you how excited I am about teaching 2 Peter. And we're going to go straight from 2 Peter into Jude. Everybody say, hey, Jude. We're going to go through Jude, but not like I did before. I I wrote, I've got a workbook for for Jude. But we're going to do it a little bit different and approach it differently. But it's powerful. 2 Peter and Jude are very similar, as we're going to see in a moment. But this is a prophetic book, 2 Peter. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a little bit about the background of it as we start. And I want to remind you that the notes are available for you from now on. If you want to grab them out there, they're like $2.99, something like that, just to cover the paper and printing and all that. But if you want to have a book on Second Peter and a book on Jude when it's done, then you can do that. And it's good, good stuff. You can go back to it years after we're finished. So let's pray tonight. And let's believe the Lord to speak to us through this and build us up in the faith. Father, we just thank you that you are the writer, ultimately, of the Word of God. It's all inspired by you. And Lord, we know that you had a distinct purpose for 2 Peter. And Lord, you moved on your apostle to write what we're about to look at tonight. I pray that this will be a life changer. And that you will renew our minds, deliver us from bondages, build our faith, increase and enhance our wisdom, our knowledge, our understanding of the Word of God, and grow us up into the full maturity and likeness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. Now you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I open my mind and heart to your Word. Speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this is going to be good. And you can be seated. God bless you. Somebody came up to me tonight and said, Well, have you gotten a pickup yet? If you weren't here Sunday, you don't know what I'm talking about. Ask somebody because it was, it was funny. I said, Not yet, but I'm sure thinking about it. Anyway, let's move on here. A trek through Second Peter, part one. Now, we're going to look tonight at faith's convictions, but let's go into a little bit of background here. Simon Peter wrote how many letters? Two. Now, here's the second one, and let's, let's compare the first from the second. Peter wrote his first letter because he was deeply moved by the suffering of God's people. They were being persecuted, martyred, abused. As we saw in the series we went through last. But he wrote the second letter because he was moved by the seduction of God's people. First letter, their suffering. The second letter, their seduction. Now he was moved the first time by what Satan, the old lion, was doing. But he was moved the second time by what Satan, the old liar, was doing. When he wrote his first letter, the attack was from without. But when he wrote the second time, the attack was from within. And it was much more serious, and it always is. 
All right? The church could not be destroyed from without by fierce torments, but it could be destroyed from within by false teachings. And guess what? It still can. Okay? Now, Peter's second epistle follows the same pattern as all the other second epistles of the New Testament. Here's four of them. 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and 2 John. Every one of those seconds deal with error or apostasy. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's, 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 it's amazing when you look at church history how the enemy came against the church with two things. Outward persecution to scare them, intimidate them, and try to silence them. The second thing, he came at them for, with false teaching, with error, with apostasy, with deception and try to corrupt them from within. Now, if you want to look at God's dealings with his people all through history, starting with the Old Testament and moving forward, God's people often got attacked from without, and they survived it. But they often did not survive the attack from within. We see God's people Israel being corrupted by false teaching, by deception. And you move into the New Testament, uh, Nero did not silence them. Persecution did not silence them. Other emperors, the nine other emperors that attacked the local church did not silence them. But what really began to get them and what was concerning Peter was deception. And I tell you, it's the same today. The devil knows that when he attacks the church with persecution, those of us that are real, we tend to get hotter for Jesus. But it's that seduction of deception that finds its way in and takes the church down more often than not. So, in his first letter, Peter had a burden to comfort those believers who were going through the fire. But in the second letter, he's got a burden to caution those believers who were playing with the fire. His second epistle is full of warning. It's comparable in many ways to the epistle of Jude, as we've mentioned. Probably what had come to full fruit and flower when Jude wrote what was only beginning to bloom and blossom when Peter wrote. So in Jude, you find that this apostasy and deception was in full force, in full bloom, had really gotten a foothold in the church. But when he wrote Second Peter, it was just beginning. So that's why I want to go on into Jude after we finish Second Peter and see how the Lord dealt with this deception because I'm going to tell you, church, right now, the church's greatest enemy is rampant deception. Rampant deception. I'm amazed almost weekly by the things that the church is believing and accepting and embracing rather than discerning and rebuking and binding. Peter's second epistle is in three parts. Here it is. Faith's convictions, chapter 1. Faith's contention, chapter 2. And faith's consummation, chapter 3. So, we're going to look tonight at faith convictions and next week as well. I only got halfway through it to do it justice, but we're going to cover a lot tonight. Now let's read together Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained what, everybody? Like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look what he calls Jesus. Our who? And? Did y'all catch that? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was God. 
wrapped in skin. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there you've got Simon Peter calling Jesus God. And grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now I want you to notice first that Peter identifies himself as a servant. That's from the Greek word doulos. And doulos really actually meant slave. He said, I'm a slave of Jesus. Now that's a whole message. I could park right there and spend the rest of the night. Because we're not just believers in Jesus. Are you ready? Can we say it without feeling bad about it, but realizing how powerful it really is that we are the slaves of Jesus? See, you don't really experience Jesus' freedom until you are Jesus' slave. So Peter says, here I am. I'm the Lord's doulos, his slave. That's the way I live. That's me. Now, this was his lowly status. In the Old Testament, when a slave loved his master dearly, it was his option when the time of emancipation arrived to deliberately choose to remain a lifelong bond slave. He could do that. You find that in Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Surely, this is how Peter loved Jesus. And what about you? If you could be emancipated, you would not. Amen? Oh, no, we want to be more a slave than we've ever been. Because to serve him as a slave is to be the Lord's free man. Amen? He was also an apostle, apostolos, meaning sent one. When somebody tells me they're an apostle, I say, really? Well, show me what you've done. Show me the churches. Show me where you've been. Show me the fruit. But you know what apostle really means? One that is sent. And this was his lofty status. He was a servant, a slave, but he was also a miracle worker. It amazes me that Peter's very shadow healed the sick on the side of the road. Can you imagine that? Look what the Bible says in Acts 5.15. When they knew Simon Peter was coming to town, look what they did. They brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of this man passing by might fall on some of them. Get me under his shadow. Get me under his shadow. I, I never know anybody that had an anointed shadow. Have you? Peter had an anointed shadow. And when that shadow of Simon Peter would cross over the sick, they got up. They were healed. That's anointed. He's the Lord's slave. But because he was the Lord's slave, he was the Lord's miracle worker. The man named Peter was a mighty apostle of the Lamb and the inspired writer of the letter that we're now going to study. So let's look at it. Peter next addresses his readers, and of course, little did he know that 21 centuries later, those readers would include us. Amen? Describing them in three ways. First, he described them as to their beliefs. They were, read it with me, everybody, those who have obtained, I can hear about three of you, those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there, he's talking about our beliefs. We believed in him. And because we believed in him, we have like precious faith. Your faith and my faith are the same faith. 
Now the word for like precious, that phrase, like precious, faith, is isodomos, isodomos. And it is found only here. And here's what it means. Equal value. Every one of us in here tonight who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, every one of us have equal value faith. There isn't anybody better than anybody else. Guess what? Your faith is equal to Billy Graham's. And Billy Graham's is equal to yours because we have like precious faith. The faith of the humblest, weakest believer is of equal value in the sight of God as is the faith of Abraham or that of the apostle Peter. You've got the same faith Peter had. It's like precious faith. Glory to God. Now, not only do we have the same faith, but of equal value, but Peter then describes his readers as to their blessings. We've got the same blessings. Read it with me. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Turn to your neighbor and say, that means you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, what's grace? Grace is God's provision for our every need. While we live down here in enemy territory, anybody needed something from God this week? How many of you needed something from God today? Amen. Well, here's what he's telling us. Notice, he says, grace and peace are going to be multiplied to you. And when are they multiplied? As you grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I want you to catch this. This is why I teach the Bible. Books, whole books. I don't have a few pet verses that I harp on endlessly, nauseatingly, or that grows stale. No, I'm going to teach you the whole counsel of God. Because according to this right here, that grace and peace are multiplied as we grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. The better we know our God and the better we know our Jesus, the more we experience that grace and peace being multiplied. Grace is God's provision for our every need while we're in enemy territory. All of the infinite resources of God's throne are at our disposal to enable us to face each situation and meet every demand made upon us. Grace, grace. But then he also says God's going to give you peace. Peace is God's provision for your inner need. Now, grace is your provision for every need. Peace is your provision for inner need. Anybody need the peace of God today? Once again, amen. I need it on the way here. I always need it in rush hour traffic. Y'all know that. I need peace. I need grace. But watch this. Paul called this peace, I love this, the peace that cannot even be understood. The peace that passes, surpasses all understanding. He said God's peace is going to guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. It's going to guard you, guard you from fear. It guards you from worry. It guards you from panic. It guards you from all the damaging emotions the enemy can fire into your mind. God's peace. And he said, it's ours through Jesus Christ. I love the way the New Living Translation put it. He said, God's peace exceeds anything we can understand. You say to somebody, how can you have peace in this? I don't know. I just do. How can you have peace laying here in a hospital bed? You know what? It surpasses all understanding. All I know is that it's here. How can you have peace when your kids have gone crazy? You know, I can't explain it. I took it to God I don't understand it, 
but I've got it. Peace that passes understanding. The church of like faith also had a like peace that was supernatural and part and parcel of the blessings God distributed to the saints. Amen. Now third, Peter addresses Christians and their behavior. Uh-oh. Now he's going to meddle. Now he's going to meddle. But here's what he says. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him. There it is again. Through the knowledge of him. Do you see how important knowledge is? That you know God, that you know Jesus? He says, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So his divine power that is residing in everyone in this room has put their faith in Jesus Christ. That divine power is giving to you everything you need for life and godliness. And it only gets better the more you know about him. We cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. You can't do it. I wouldn't put Christianity on anybody without the Holy Ghost. We can't live it in our own strength because it's a supernatural life. So God bestows on us all things that pertain to living a righteous, godly life. He gives it to us. So notice we have a great gift, all things. And we've got a great goal, life and godliness. Did you know that right up there, that's your goal? Your life's goal is life and godliness. If you have life and you have godliness, you're rich. You're rich. Have you noticed what some of the movie stars in this country are doing who have more money than they know what to do with? Millions and millions and, and millions and multiple millions of dollars, but they're so miserable. They drown their minds and souls out in drugs and alcohol and rampant immorality. Why are they doing that? Because money doesn't satisfy. You know what does? Life and godliness. That's what does it. And I wish I could shake some of them and slap them a little bit and say, Hey! The word knowledge is epigenosis. Epigenosis. What does that mean? It means knowledge gained through first-hand relationship. Contact knowledge. First-hand experiential knowing. Remember that little phrase, agnostic? Listen, ah, gnosis. Agnostic means I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Okay? But knowledge, especially this Greek word, epigenosis, is talking about knowledge that you have learned by personal experience. Knowledge that is progressive. It is knowledge that you are growing in. You have not arrived. I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. But we are growing progressively in the knowledge of Jesus Christ by personal experience with his glory and his virtue. So everybody in here ought to be growing. Now Peter is talking about or talking to those who are progressively coming to know through personal experience the person of Christ Jesus. And how do we come to know him in this way? How do we come to know Jesus? Anybody in here want to know Jesus better? Do you really? Better than you knew him last year? Shouldn't we be able to say at the end of this year, I know him so much better than I knew him last year. Last year was great, but this year is greater. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm growing every single day, every week, month, and year. 
in the knowledge already. We've seen this two or three times just getting into 2 Peter. It's, it's coming to know him progressively and experientially in day-to-day life. And we never arrive till we get to heaven. Peter says, here's how you get to know the Lord, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Again, how many of you want to know how to get to know the Lord better? Get to know Jesus better, grow in Jesus? Here it is right here. Here's the key. He has given to us, look what Peter says now, we get to know him. Well, I'm going too far back. We get to know him. It has, it, it's connected to his exceedingly great and precious promises. The promises Peter is speaking about are the amazing promises made to us who are in Jesus Christ. And there's so many of them. These promises, hallelujah, are not man-made because men will break promises. But no, these promises in the Bible are backed by the absolute integrity of God himself and by all the power of his throne. Let God be true and every man a liar. If God promised it, it cannot be moved, it cannot be shaken, and you know what? You'll never discover that he lied to you. You'll never discover that he told you a half-truth. You'll never discover that he said, well, you know, I didn't really mean that. Uh Uh-uh. No. God's integrity backs up every one of his promises. There's a promise for every need. 365 times alone in the Word of God it says, fear not. A fear not for every day, that's just scratching the surface. You know, there are thousands of promises in the Word of God. That's why you're holding in your hand a treasure chest. You're holding in your, hold up your Bible for just a second. You're holding in your hand a treasure chest. You ought to be reading it all the time just to see what you can lay claim to. The promises of God are blank checks. Drawn on the bank of heaven. Signed by the Lord of glory with the ink of his own blood. Boy, I could preach tonight. That's why the devil doesn't want you to read the Bible. I mean, have you ever noticed when you say, I'm going to read the Bible more and pray more, all the things that come against you all of a sudden to distract you and keep you out of that prayer closet? Because every promise you read, listen, those promises build hope and they build your faith and they are anchors for your soul. Peter called them exceedingly great and precious. And those promises are given to us so that we can fill in our name our need, and the now of our present emergency. Peter next lays out what we might call the great essential for every believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you what your Christian life is all about. Why you got saved. Now, you got saved for heaven, you got saved to be delivered. But here is the great essential for every single Christian in the world. All right, are you ready? That through these, through what's the these, what's that referring to? The great and the precious promises, that through those promises, you may be, read it with me everybody, partakers of the divine nature. Stop right there. Through those promises, we partake of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. 
He makes all things work together for the good of those who love God and the calling called according to his purpose that we might be formed and shaped into the image of Christ. What is God's will for you? He liked Jesus so much, he wants to see him repeated in all of us. So it's through the promises and laying hold of the promises that we literally partake of the divine nature. And then he goes on, having escaped. Can everybody say escaped? Boy, this is a loaded verse. The corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, partaker, when he says partaker of the divine nature, what's that mean? Partaker means something we have in common with somebody else. That's it. We've got something in common with somebody else. Here it refers to the divine nature. You know what it's telling us? We're going to be taking on the nature of Christ in our own life growing in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, and faith. And as we do, we have something in common with Jesus. We are partakers of who he is. According to Paul in the book of Romans, our old nature has been crucified with Christ and is to be reckoned dead. All Christians, we all in this room, have this in common. All right? We've been crucified. And as we yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit, our new life in Jesus Christ is made evident. One of the exceeding great and precious promises is that sin will not have dominion over us. That's exceeding, and that's great. And again, all Christians have this in common as well. Turn to your neighbor and say, sin isn't going to have dominion over you. Preach each other a little bit. Now, you know what you're telling one another? You're telling one another truth about them. About them. You're telling them what the Bible says about them. That your, your old man's crucified with Jesus. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Sin shall have no longer dominion over you. And that's one of the exceedingly great and precious promises by which when we lay hold of that, we become a partaker of the divine nature. Peter next turns his attention to something else that we've got in common. And that's not only um, a sharing of the divine nature, but it's a great escape. A great escape. He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you know that you experienced a great escape? When you got saved, we're all escapees. We're all escapees out of a terrible prison house. The word escape is from a Greek word meaning to flee away. And that's the Bible's best advice for dealing with temptation. People say, how do I win over this? Don't get near it. You can't fall if you're not there. Okay? If you have trouble with alcohol, why are you going to a place where there's alcohol? If you got trouble with drugs, don't hang around people that do drugs. If you have a problem with lust, stay away from pornography. Even if you don't, stay away from it. Because you will. The word escape means get out of there. Now watch this. Flee from it. Lingering in sin's neighborhood is dangerous. The word for corruption, so important, so important. It comes from a word that is used to describe a corpse 
This is what the devil always did with the people of God in the Old Testament. He got them corrupted. You know what Balaam did? What, he, why he was really there? You know why it's called the sin of Balaam? You know why Balaam is pointed out in the book of Jude? We're going to look at that someday. Because the king, the pagan king, hired Balaam to come and curse the people of God. But he couldn't do it. Every time he stood to curse them, he ended up prophesying good over them to where the king was going crazy. He said, quit prophesying. I've hired you to curse them. He said, I can't help it. Every time I go to curse them, I feel like I've got to prophesy good over them. But then he said to this king, let me tell you what you can do with them. Cause them to intermingle with pagan women. And the men of Israel will learn their pagan ways and will learn their idols and they will become corrupted from within. And you know what? It worked. If the devil can't take you down from without, he'll try to corrupt you from within. So the word for, for corruption is powerful. It, it means a corpse. And it depicts the condition of creation under the curse. It carries the idea of destruction by means of corruption. Peter uses this word to portray the effect of lust upon human society. You know how many things are out there you and I can go get involved in that will quickly corrupt us? You know one of the major challenges of the Christian walk is to walk in the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh and avoid corrupting things. Plenty of things out there. Drugs will instantly, quickly corrupt you. I am of the personal opinion alcohol can be very corrupting. Pornography is hugely corrupting. There's all kinds of things out there that will corrupt you from within. For a while, nobody will see the growing inward rot. But one day, it will finally come out. And that's why you've got to guard against things that, that, that uh, corrupt you, that compromise the integrity of your spiritual walk. Peter says, God gave us a great escape from that. People outside of Christ become slaves to their lusts. Jesus answered them and said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, here at the beginning, we got Peter saying he's a slave of Jesus. So guess what, everybody? There are no free people in this world. You're either a slave of sin or you are a slave of Jesus Christ. There is no independent thinker. There is no... Lone ranger who does what he wants, goes where he wants, and is his own man or their own woman. Uh-uh. You're a slave of sin or you're a slave of Jesus. Sin will bind you and Jesus will set you free. Now the gospel is the only way of escape from the death grip of sin. And so Peter next tells us how to achieve the great essential of partaking of the divine nature and it's largely a matter of addition. Everybody say addition. He says add. Now we're going to close out the next few verses pretty quickly, but I want to show you um, how Peter set before us a sevenfold progression in our spiritual growth in Jesus Christ in our knowledge of God. He said add. Spiritual arithmetic, add. Here's some things you are to add to your faith. He says first, we must behave as those redeemed from the dead. Anybody in here redeemed from the dead? Sure you are. If you're in Jesus, you're redeemed from the dead. So Peter says, 
but also, this is verse 5, chapter 1, but also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, that means you work at it, add to your faith virtue. Now, a lot of people through the years have said to me, well, Pastor Jeff, if salvation is by grace alone, why does it say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, notice, he didn't say, work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. He said, once you're saved, work it out. That means by faith, you add to what the Lord has done for you. You don't save yourself by any works, but you do, by faith, add to the house of faith God's building in your life. And he says here, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Well, the phrase, for this very reason, giving all diligence, comes from a Greek word that conveys the idea of bringing something in to be placed by the side of something else. So I'm saved, now I'm reaching out, and I'm adding next to me, I'm bringing into my spiritual walk, first, virtue. I'm adding it. Peter has already mentioned like precious faith, a faith that is nourished by exceeding great and precious promises. But faith does not stand alone apart from works. We know that, right? Faith, Peter says, needs to have virtue brought in and placed by its side. Virtue speaks of moral excellence. Moral excellence. Paul taught about this very thing. He said in Philippians, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. If there's any what? And if there's anything praiseworthy, think about these things. Let me tell you where we win our victory in between our two ears. Listen carefully to me tonight. If you're defeated, I promise you, you're defeated between your ears in your mind. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God are the pulling down of strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's whatever holds you strong. And what does a stronghold mean? It's castles in the mind. It is thought patterns. It is beliefs. It is things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God in your life. You can be saved and have strongholds. And they are thought patterns that defeat you. So Paul says, if you want to be free, you've you got to turn your mind to think on certain things and refuse to think about other things. So what are we to think about? Virtuous things. Not degrading things, debasing things, but virtuous things. But then he goes on, we must not only have integrity, walking in virtue, but also be informed. And to virtue, add knowledge. Again, the word for knowledge right there is gnosis, which refers to knowledge acquired by learning, effort, and experience. It means you have made an effort to learn. That's what you're here tonight, and that shows me you're making an effort to learn. There's about two-thirds, and I know some people can't be here. There's a lot of other people that might could have been, and they're not. But you're making an effort to learn. And Jesus said, it will not be taken away from you. You chose the good thing. So, knowledge is something that you learn by effort and experience. It's the acquisition of spiritual truth. God does not place a premium on, premium on ignorance ever. There's no premium on ignorance. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, 
and strength. He gave us a brain, use it. And I can tell you, use it or lose it. There's a lot of brain-dead believers. Jesus said, you shall know, gnosko, the truth. And the truth is going to make you free. The more you know of the truth of God, the more free you become. Now next, we must not only be taught, but also be temperate. And what does temperate mean? He says, and to knowledge, add temperance, chapter 1, verse 6. Temperance means self-control. Now think with me for a minute about old Solomon. Solomon's great failure was he had incredible knowledge and wisdom, but he had no self-control. He possessed knowledge and wisdom so incredible that they came from everywhere in the world to sit and listen to him opine about different topics. He was a botanist. He was a scientist. He understood insects. He understood the animal kingdom. He was, he was, a, he was a genius. Filled, look at the Proverbs. And yet, his personal life descended into a scandal. Why? Because he had knowledge, but no, no self-control. Knowledge, but no self-control. Solomon failed to add self-control to his knowledge. Paul said, here's what I do. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Why? Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified, knocked out of the race. So he said, you've got to have self-control. And we all struggle with it, don't we? Am I alone or do the rest of you struggle with it too? Self-control? Something has happened to me since Christmas. I'm going to tell you. Never in my life have I had a weakness for chocolate. But Kathy put this big jar of these red and green M&Ms right in the middle of the kitchen. I'm being serious now. I got to where I couldn't walk past it. Anybody been there? I could not. I'd, I'd say, well, just a few. Oh, I'd come out with a big handful. Well, I won't eat them real fast. And I'd go through the house popping these M&Ms. And, and, and then when Christmas was over, I found myself with this hankering for chocolate. And I began to stop at convenience stores. I'm serious. I know y'all are looking at me. Listen, I began to stop at convenience stores for chocolate. I said, I can't believe this. I have fought all kinds of things, but I have never fought chocolate. So, and then, okay, and then here's where the final deal came. Kathy brought home. Now, I know you're thinking, well, Kathy's corrupting you. No, she's not. Because we take care of little Jasmine sometimes. She loves these things. But she brought home this great big thing of Chips Ahoy. Now, I'm just telling you, you put those things in the freezer, I cannot open that freezer and walk away clean. And I began to wolf these things. I mean, I noticed, I took notes several times a day. So I, re I literally had to take a stand against chocolate self-control. So, well, why don't you just go on and eat chocolate? Because I'm going to tell you, it would turn me into a doughboy. <laughs> it would. So I just had to, I, I had to start practicing 
self-control. Now, but it can be anything. It can be anything. But you don't let anything rule you but Jesus Christ. He is the only thing that can rule you. Now, we must not only be in possession of ourselves, we also need to have patience. Uh Uh-oh. And a self-control. Oh, I thought patience was just dropped on me. No, look, it says you can add it. Add it. Everybody say add. So, So it's not just something that comes to you, you know, sort of mysteriously over time, but you can literally add patience to your side. By faith, it's an exceeding great and precious promise because Jesus was patient. Patience comes from the Greek word hupomene. Now, that's two words. Look, hypo means under. That's where you get hypodermic. It goes under your skin. Hypo and meno means to remain or to endure. That's the Greek word hupomene. And look how it works out. It means to remain steadfast under adversity. That's the word. You remain steadfast. The patient person doesn't act in a hurry. He allows time to sort things out. He knows how to put up with things. Anybody in here have to put up with somebody that takes some putting up with? Now look at your spouse. Look up at me. Look straight at me. But you know what I'm talking about. And and if you're not married, I guarantee you God will see to it. There's somebody that you're going to have to put up with because he's teaching us patience. Now, the patient person, and this is why this, this series on providence is so important that I'm doing on Sundays, because once you get a real grasp of providence, it brings a rest to you. When you do everything you can to change something and it just can't change, you say, Lord, I trust your providence, and you rest. You just rest. It helps you to be patient. Don't act in a hurry. You allow God and yourself and others time to sort things out. This doesn't mean that you apathetically endure something that calls for action or that you really should change. It means that ultimately you've learned to wait on God without fretting or without getting angry. That's patience. Moreover, we must not only be patiently good, but also patiently godly. And to patience, he says in verse 6, to patience add godliness. What's godliness? It means to be devout. That's simple. It carries the idea of doing what is pleasing to God. Jesus said, And the one who sent me is with me, and he has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. That's godly. That's devout. Jesus is our chief example. To be godly is to seek to always do what pleases the Father, just like he did. Amen? Now, Coming down to the end here, in addition, we must not only be godly, but also be kind. And to godliness, add brotherly kindness. Now, every believer is a member of God's family. And there ought to be a genuine spirit of brotherly love between us. You don't have to like somebody to love them. Have you realized that? He didn't say, I want you to like everybody, because we can't do that. But we can love everybody. You can put on love. Add to your walk love. Add it. You, by faith, add it. We're we're grabbing these exceeding great and precious promises by faith and adding them to our life. So you add love. Being godly doesn't mean that we're holier than thou. Distant, grim, humorless. Those kind of people drive me nuts. I don't want to be around the people that are so serious about the things of God. 
that everything is the end of the world and fire and judgment and whoa. And you tell them a joke and they look at you like you're uh, lost. Oh, praise God. You walk into some churches, God's frozen chosen. There's no joy, no smiles, no gleam in their eye. It's scary. If this is what God did to you, The Lord Jesus was the holiest man to ever live, but guess what? He was the most approachable of men. Do you know that? Mothers brought their children to him. Would you bless my little one? Lepers and the demon-possessed came to him. Would you heal me? The rich and the powerful gladly approached him. Outcasts felt comfortable approaching him. You know why? Because he was kind. Don't be so holy. No one can get near you. I contend the holier you are, the more people want to draw near. Finally, we must not only be kind, but also loving. And here we're going to close. To brotherly kindness, add love. The word for love is agape, or you've heard it, agape. It refers to the highest kind of love, the kind of love God has for his son. The only way we can add this God-like attribute to our spiritual, uh, other spiritual traits is through the power of the Holy Spirit because it is a fruit of the Spirit. Agape love is not a product of our natural feelings. Well, I'll love him when I feel it. Do you know what? Agape love, part of the understanding of the word is you choose to love somebody. You add it. You add it. You can love the most unlovely when you learn that the Bible says it's a promise to you. Add it and walk in it. You can love them. don't have to like them. Love them. It seeks the well-being of everybody and is known by what it does, not what it says. Now here's Peter ending with an incredible promise. If these things are yours and abound, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a dull creed or a sterile set of rules. It is knowing Christ and taking on His divine nature. The guarantee is that by adding these things to your daily walk will assure fruitfulness and abundance. Now, I want you to say with me, I can add them. That's the command of God. So we ought to be like treasure hunters and run out of here and say, man, I'm going to grab that virtue. I'm going to grab that agape love. I'm going to grab that patience and I'm going to add it by faith. Amen. Let's stand up together, can we? How many of you needed this tonight? I said, how many of you needed this tonight? All right. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you right now for the incredible life that's been placed in us by Jesus Christ. And the Lord, we just thank you that you have given us exceeding great and precious promises to lay hold of by faith and by faith add them into our spiritual reservoir. Help us to keep it in mind and to do it that we might be like Jesus. Thank you breathe a prayer tonight as we get ready to dismiss and say, Lord, help me to do what I heard. Help me to walk in what I heard. <clears throat> help me to do it. <clears throat> In Jesus' name.
Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise, can we?